Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to Grillin' JR. With the voice of wrestling, the one and only good old JR, Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. Better probably I deserve to be. We're living in interesting times, as everybody knows. I'm not going to go into a long diatribe about the uh, virus, but it's affecting everybody's life. No matter where you live, no matter where you're listening to, there is some effect on your life right now as we speak regarding this damn virus. So, uh, well, Jim, I got to tell you, we, uh, we got to give you guys a lot of props uh, it feels like everything has been canceled and yet the wrestling companies find a way to keep cranking out content. WWE had to experiment a little bit with empty arena smackdowns and empty arena raws. And then we got to see our first empty arena dynamite and man, it was just high marks all across the board. Uh, the most well-received empty arena thing since well, probably uh Lawler funk, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That was, and that was classic because great. I'm sure a lot of folks are catching up with the empty arena match with Lawler and funk on YouTube and things of that nature. Uh, this thing's affecting all of us and, uh, you know, it's affecting travel and the whole nine yards. Uh, I'm planning on going back out next week or uh, going, well, put that better, better said I'm, I'm planning out. I'm planning on flying every week that we're working. Yeah. We just don't, we just don't know how long the damn flights are going to continue to go. Yeah. It's, it's a weird time, man. You know, there, there's so many uncertainties in our life right now. One thing we can always count on though, Jim and I are going to work hard to entertain you. He is broadcasting from the comfort of his home and I'm doing the same. So we're both sort of self quarantined. And I know that you guys are taking similar steps. I read in the observer, uh, that last week's dynamite, it was a deal where the crew had to leave before the roster could show up. And then everyone was separated and, uh, great great attention to detail to make sure that, you know, we're, we're going to great lengths to try to entertain everybody, but keep everybody safe. But thankfully our product here, the podcast, man, you can enjoy this all by yourself. Absolutely. And we're not going to, we're, we're going to continue to pr- put out new shows every week. If Conrad wanted me to, and he wanted to do two shows a week during this uh, ordeal or um, our additional material, I'm all in, uh, no pun intended, 
but uh, yeah, we're going to continue to do what we do because we all need a diversion. And hopefully these, uh, these few minutes that you spend with us will, will provide you that diversion. I got a lot on my mind this week, Conrad, you know, this is the, this week, uh, this past, uh, the 20, I think the 22nd of, uh, March was, uh, when Jan died and uh, I think her, her accident was on the 20th. So all this whole week and this, these few days, there's always something that pops up. Somebody remembers, I get a tweet or a face, you know, a Facebook thing or, or what have you, Twitter, you know, Twitter's always big for that stuff. It's amazing how fans have this great memory and recall, but nonetheless, I lost my angel three years ago this week. It ain't no, it's not much easier, but, uh, it is what it is. And we have to continue to live and enjoy things and be respectful of what we got. And I certainly am blessed with 25 years of that woman. So, uh, it's all good. Life is good. I'm blessed. I'm very blessed. And, and this is a, this uh, show we're talking about today was probably one of the biggest blessings I ever had in the professionally. Absolutely. It kind of, it kind of lost everything. We're going to talk about WrestleMania nine today, but before we get going, we should mention, uh, if you're a big fan of, of Mr. Ross and obviously want to hear more about his story, just like I am, I can't recommend his new book enough. It's something you can do right now while you're self quarantining a little bit too. It's jrsbbq.com is where you can pick up an autograph version. You're also going to get a commemorative bookmark as a little keepsake. And he'll personalize it for you. And that includes free shipping to the lower 48 for just 40 bucks. Uh, but by now it's going to be just about everywhere. I guess you should know that on the 30th. Now, most businesses are probably closed, but from what I understand, Amazon is still delivering. So Amazon can help you get this. And, uh, I understand that, that there's still going to be delivery methods, even in these unique times. So, uh, you can, you can certainly try that, but you can also go to jrsbbq.com. And just we're, get it customized. Why not? Yeah, we're going to ship. You know, if you get if your order comes in, uh, for example, today, uh, it will go out tomorrow. So we're going to ship our books. We're working on an opportunity. It won't be forty bucks, but it's not going to be a highway robbery either because of the damn cost of the shipping. We're also working on uh, uh, a shipping package, a book package for the UK and for Canada that should be. Uh, public anytime, but the lower 48 as Conrad said free, that's a hell of a good deal. Uh, we're going to ship them out from here in Norman. So, uh, I appreciate your support on that. It's a, it's a very, it's probably the most memorable piece of work that I've ever been involved in creating, uh, because of the nature of the story and how, uh, it affected my life. It affected my friend's life, my family, because she, Jan was such a big part of what we did. And you, you realize how important she was, uh, in the talent relations department, because every, most of these guys that, uh, that I've managed had a family and they had wives more often than not. And, uh, for the men, obviously. And, but she was just great with talking to them and making them comfortable, making them feel that they're important too, because these wrestling relationships, one reason these damn wrestling relationships don't work is because the star of the family has such a, uh, unsurpassed ego that they could be, he or she, uh, have to be the center of everything. And so sometimes then the significant other gets kind of left out. And, uh, and so she was very good about picking up the slack there and remembering birthdays and anniversaries and things like that. So, uh, I think for history, wrestling fans are like history like reality. And look, it's not a hatchet job. J.R. killing Vince. There's stories in there that'll make you cringe, but they're truth. And it made me stronger 
And look where I am today. I'm an AEW, loving life. I'm working with Conrad Thompson, loving life. <laughs> so what the hell do I have to be complaining about? I'm very lucky, very blessed. And again, I think you'll really love the book. It's the best wrestling book I've ever read. You know, I've heard uh, a lot of people say that the best book was Mick Foley's first one or Bret Hart's book, but I'm going to tell you, this is in everybody's top three. You got to see it. You got to read it. You got to check it out. I couldn't put it down. Can't recommend it enough. JRSBBQ.com. Get a personalized. Uh, it is a great book. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, I think even a casual wrestling fan or even your wife may enjoy it because there's a real human aspect to it. So can't recommend it enough. Go out of your way to get it. But without further ado, we're here today to talk about one of the most important days of Jim's career. It's WrestleMania nine. When you and I first started doing this show, our first episode was about leaving WCW. And this is really where it all gets kicked off for you. I know you had done some behind the scenes stuff and some promotional stuff and some radio stuff, but this is your first WWF broadcast. Is it not? Yeah. First public broadcast. The irony of that is, uh, uh, before Bobby Heenan and I flew with, uh, from, uh, Stanford LaGuardia, more specifically back out to Vegas, uh, or out to Vegas, uh, we did voiceovers for the shows that would air after WrestleMania. So you may wonder, well, how did you do that? Well, through the magic of, uh, uh, fiction storytelling. So Heenan and I worked together before leaving because it was the regular voiceover week to do three challenge shows. So Heenan and I did three wrestling challenge shows based on what we thought was going to happen or told was going to happen in Las Vegas at WrestleMania nine. So we actually did some work before we left, but live for all that really counts, WrestleMania nine was the, the launch of everything that I did in those 26 years with Vince. Let's, uh, let's dig into it, man. It's, it's a weird time in wrestling too, because there's so much upheaval in WCW I guess we should remind everybody this went down on April 4th, 1993 Caesars palace in Las Vegas. Uh, it's, uh, a first that there's going to be a show like this, uh, outdoors for WrestleMania. And it's also your first show in the WWF. Uh, let's sort of reset the stage of, of how you got here. There was a, a major bloodletting is the way it was described in the observer on February 2nd. It is a significant change in the hierarchy of WCW that resulted in a loss of power of Bill Watts. And, uh, for better or worse, you got some shrapnel on you and you saw your duties change in a way where you weren't exactly tickled with this move. Was that fair? No, no, I wasn't because, uh, the WCW and the, the brain surgeons of Bill Shaw and Bob do, uh, they had no respect for wrestling in my opinion. And uh, they, as much as said that they were, they had no, pay, they paid no attention to it. They didn't try to learn more about the business and gain product knowledge, uh, whatsoever. So, uh, it was not a, it, they violated their own contract. Uh, TVS wrote a contract for me, a three-year contract, good money. And they outlined my job description. I didn't ask for that. They, they wanted that. So I agreed to it. My eight, my manager and I agreed to that. So. They violated their, they meaning WCW violated their own agreement by reassigning me to sell, to be a syndicated TV salesman. And I was, I was so naive and trying to be, you know, trying to be uh, a team player that I, uh, went along with it for about a week. It was horrible. I felt like I'd been neutered. My balls are cut off and hung on the, on the, on the antenna of the car. 
it was horrible. So I, I just, it was not good. It was, it was a bad way to leave in that respect. But in hindsight, after all the heartbreak and the emotional bullshit and being, uh, getting that shrapnel from the cowboy, uh, which is this convenient way to, to, for a lot of guys is to avoid uh, confrontation or discussion or communication. Well, you know, Bill, you got too much heat from Bill. So we got to change this thing. So it all, it never came to me like, well, you did this, you did that. It was always about cowboy. So cowboy was the, was the, was the villain. Cowboy was the heel. I was, uh, you know, the man Friday here and boom, uh, the shit spread everywhere. And when shit starts slinging, you're bound to get a little on you. We should mention, uh, you wrote in your book when he was gone, I was ostracized and you go in specifics when you say that Bill Shaw brought you into the office and said that, uh, quote, here's your options from here on out. You can take six weeks off to let things cool down and he interrupted him. I don't want to. And he would continue. Just hear me out. We'll continue to pay you. And you come back when the bad taste is gone out of this place, but I didn't want to go anywhere. I knew what it would look like if I followed Watts out the door, even short term. So I asked, what's my other option? And he said, well, you accept a reassignment you keep your official title as vice president of broadcasting and you interrupt, but, and he continues, but you'll be working in syndication sales, traveling nationwide to market WCW to various local TV affiliates across the country. You'll also be working behind the scenes with the announcers on the Sunday WCW show. And he pushed, if you take the six weeks, I might be able to get you back on the air when you get back. And you wrote in your book, Shaw knew that was the position I wanted to keep the most. And you asked, how are you going to get me back on the air? When Bischoff specifically said he doesn't want me calling the shows and Shaw replies, you don't have to worry about Bischoff. He works for me. Now, of course we know how that's going to wind up. You ultimately decide this isn't for you. You resign on February 25th, 1993. Did you ever have a conversation with Bischoff about why he didn't want you on the call? I don't remember, uh, that we did quite honestly. And look, it was, it was so simple. It wasn't a mystery. I didn't need to have reconfirmation from Eric as to why he didn't want me there. I, I cast a long shadow there. I was a very important part, <clears throat> at least in my mind. Uh, of the, uh, of the administration of WCW since the day it was formed. Uh, so he, he didn't need me there. And if I were in his position, I probably would have done the same thing. You need to clean house. You need to get to all the old baggage away, whether that baggage is good, could still got use or not. I felt like I still had a plenty of, had plenty of use. I think in subsequently in the 26 years that followed that in WWE, I proved that on more than one occasion. And, uh, it also showed early on that, uh, even though Eric got the job and he did a hell of a job for, for a good while, no doubt. Uh, and I know that he's a part of your podcast family. Every Monday he comes on with a new show, which I, I try to listen to. I enjoy, uh, you know, I, I, I there was nothing to talk about. What are we going to talk about? He's going to tell me why he needs to have the nobody quote unquote, looking over his shoulder. He, he, he's going to tell me why that. JR's people are not going to have JR to talk to or to commiserate with. I knew the reason I got it. And quite frankly, I'm glad that we didn't have any talks because if he had tried to talk me out of what his decision was, which was not going to happen, then I might not have gone to WWE. And if I had not gone to WWE in 1993, then, uh, a lot of great things in my life would not have occurred.
Yeah. Listen, it worked out, you know, for the best, uh, to be sure. Uh, did you know, you know, as soon as, you know, you're having this meeting with him and you feel like, Hey, I'm on my way out. Did you know, right then, Hey, I think I can get a job with the WWF. Uh, or is it more of a, no matter what, I know I don't want to be here. Well, good question. Uh, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I could ha- get a job in WWE or WWF until I went to Augusta and, uh, was a guest there, uh, and basically stood out behind the building in the loading dock area with Vince McMahon for three hours talking about me coming to work there, not pitching it over and over, but he had ideas for me. He had, he wanted to pick my brain. We talked about the uh, buying libraries. We talked about buying, uh, all these, uh, old wrestling territory libraries, TV libraries. Uh, that was an idea that I, that I, he and I shared and both were very motivated with and hence, <clears throat> uh, the WWE has a network now largely in the beginning made up of, uh, the, this product that we're talking about. Uh, we talked about doing a radio WWS show, which have been a forerunner to what to, to, to podcasting. Uh, you know, we, we believe that audio was a important element in our future. So we talked about a lot of things. Never talked about what's, what's my assignment going to be, who's my partner going to be, what show am I going to be on, what about me, what about me, am I going to get a goddamn push, Vince? Come on, tell me. You can tell me right here. A push, that's what I'm needing. No, I need a job. And let's get over the bullshit. So uh, that's, uh, I, I was hoping I'd get a job there, but I did know, Conrad, based on your question, I didn't want to hang around with, uh, there are a lot of guys in WCW I really like. Keith Mitchell, who's our head of AEW production now. Uh, but the guys I liked, I, I, I would love being around. Tony Schiavone, who's now with us in AEW as well, as everybody knows. But I didn't need to be around Bill Shaw. He was already plotting against Bischoff. Well, I'll take care of that. He works for me. Okay, big shot. Bill Shaw is like Andy Griffith on crack. Imagine Andy Griffith as a heel. That's Bill Shaw. And Bob Dew was just... Bob D was more concerned about happy hour golf and the ladies simple deal. And he, they didn't get any work out of do. He ran the army for a while. Hell, that's a, that's an idiot job. Anybody could do that. So, uh, it was, I needed to get out of Atlanta at that point. So that's uh, it. So I knew I had a gig. I knew I wanted a gig in WWE, but look, I was ready to do something else. I was ready to get out of wrestling. I was ready to try another challenge, but certainly, uh, I was hoping. I was hoping that McMahon would hire me and he did. Yeah. We, uh, we've talked about this a lot, the, the whole jump. So we'll keep it moving here, but we should mention that your meeting with Vince takes place on March 9th, 1993 fast forward. And uh, all of a sudden your big radio show on WSB, which is a major station in Atlanta. And this is back when radio was a really big deal. And this has a huge signal. Uh, and it's also in Turner's backyard. Well, your radio show essentially becomes an infomercial for WrestleMania. Man, I bet Vince McMahon was loving every bit of this. Was he not? Oh yeah, he loved it. He loved it because it was bold, and uh, we we were getting a lot of attention, getting a lot of uh, you know. If it had been today's marketplace, Conrad, with today's social media set up as they as it is, that would have been that would have been a huge story. It was a huge story anyway, but it would have been even more amplified if it was in today's marketplace. But yeah, I, I had, I used the radio show as I, I sold that radio show myself. Uh, I sold the, the ads, you know, my friend, uh, Bob Hughes at Georgia power was a big sponsor, uh, among others. 
And so I had, uh, you know, that, that was my show and I was getting paid directly to the income from those ads. That's how you made the money. The ads, it's like, you know, largely like what we do now. So it was in 37 States. And when Vince had the opportunity to do a 37 state infomercial to sell WrestleMania nine on pay-per-view, the first ever outdoor WrestleMania, uh, he jumped at it and I don't blame him. It was a great marketing opportunity to a target audience. Let's talk about some of the news and notes heading into this show, because we've covered a lot of your jump in our first episode, go back and find it in the archives. Uh, I think it's called JR heads North. Uh, let's talk about February 18th, 1993. Kerry Von Erich passes away. He's a former NWA champion. In fact, at the time he passed, he was the second youngest man to win the world title at 24 years old. Luthez won it when he was 21. He's also a former intercontinental champion in the WWF. But a lot of folks thought, man, this was going to be one of the next big, great stars in our business. Ric Flair has often said that nobody got a reaction like they did in Texas. It was just their town. Uh, and it was the entire state and they were rock stars as big as he'd ever seen. And obviously Kerry had one of the most phenomenal physiques in the history of wrestling. Did you ever meet Kerry? What were your thoughts about on his career? And, and was it a, a major shock when he passed away? No, it wasn't a major shock when he passed away because of his lifestyle. You know, you can't hide the fact that the guy had drug and alcohol issues. Uh, and, uh, and I'm ta talking about just, uh, steroids or, uh, muscle enhancement. Uh, Kerry was a phenomenal athlete. I mean, he, he, he had great D uh, DNA, great genetics. And, uh, he did have as much natural charisma as anybody I've ever seen. But, uh, you know, you knew from the day one that, uh, when he first met him, I don't think I've met Kerry. The, the, I don't know how long I knew Kerry before I met him when he wasn't high. Uh, and that's just a fact sad. It might just been on some weed, maybe smoking some pot. I don't know, but I know he liked pills at some points in time. It just was that damn, uh, that damn demon that he couldn't get rid of, couldn't shake. But as far as you drew a picture of a wrestler. Before his accident, before he got his foot amputated or, or whatever the hell happened there, uh, then, you know, he's, he's a guy six, two, you know, two forty five, agile, athletic, you know, ruggedly, uniquely handsome. He had unique looks. He's a little Schwarzenegger ish, uh, in that regard, but he was special. There's no doubt about it. He was special, but he, he prized apparently, apparently he prized being high over being great. And that has been a problem with wrestlers. It happened a lot throughout the eighties guys would rather spend their big money. They're making It's never going to end. And they spend it. They're rather spending on material things and getting high than being great and living a good life. Well, he left us way too early, February 18th, 1993, his funeral was held on February 22nd. Andre, the giants funeral was held just two days later on February 24th. On March 10th, Dino Bravo would be murdered in his home. He shot seven times in the head and 10 times in the torso, man, there is too much death in this very short stretch here. Is there not? Oh God. Yeah. It's just, it, it was out of control, lack of management in, you know, control rules, structure, communication. It's a wonder that the wrestling business survived a lot of that stuff, but it goes to show where we are now. And people say, what's going to happen to your business, Jr. Well, it's going to slow down. It's going to be adjusted, but it's not going to go away. 
the pro wrestling business is not going to die because of this virus or any other, any other scandal or any other issue, any other calamity. It's, it's, it's like a goddamn, uh, roach there. You can't kill them all. And the wrestling business is not going to die. So we just got to adjust with the times, but we're lucky that in that, in that eighties, the decadent eighties, there was just not enough drugs. There's just not enough money. There was not enough Rolexes, not enough boob jobs. There's not enough of everything. Everything was ex- excessive. And so I, 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 even though we lost a lot of real good men and some women, uh, we're probably lucky Conrad in wrestling as fans, like you and I are that we didn't lose more because it, this shit was flowing, man. It was flowing. Hey man, let me give you a little life hack just in time for mother's day and father's day. I'm talking about paintyourlife.com. That's the place where you can get a gift that mom or dad will never forget. Real quick, do you remember what you got mom or dad last year for Mother's Day or Father's Day? Well, here's how you give a gift that they'll never forget. You find something that's meaningful, something that's personal. Maybe we're talking about their mom or dad who's no longer here. Maybe it's about a long lost relative. Maybe it's about their favorite pet who's no longer with us. Maybe there was always this dream that mom and dad were going to vacation to some exotic tropical island, but they never quite made it there. Well, all of those dreams can become reality at paintyourlife.com. You simply upload those photos. You can even use a photo right out of your phone. They can even help you combine photos to create one unique memory. You'll pick the artist. You'll even pick the medium. Hey, do you want an oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even pick the frame. The whole process is less than five minutes to get started. You can get it in as little as two weeks, but along the way you work hand in hand to ensure that the artist is nailing it. They're getting exactly what you wanted and you're going to get that reaction you wanted from mom or dad. I'm telling you, this has been a home run for me. I've used it for my mom, for my dad, for my father-in-law, for my cousin, for my wife. It's great for any occasion, but with mother's day and father's day right around the corner, how do we show the people who gave us everything that we really care? I don't think you can beat a meaningful gift like this from paintyourlife.com. And if you're looking to give the best and most meaningful gift you've ever given, paintyourlife.com can hook you up. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text ROSS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. It's pretty remarkable, you know, what all's going on in this era uh, with regard to, you know, sort of the dark side of the business and dark side of the ring on vice is actually happening. Now, earlier this week, we saw the two hour debut of the Chris Benoit uh, tragedy and that story. I've had an opportunity to, to screen that one before it came out. I've also seen the new Jack one and the brawl for all one really outstanding work again from the guys at vice go out of your way to find it. It's called dark side of the ring. The debut episode was two nights ago on the 24th. 
uh, and just find vice in your local cable provider. And I think they're even posting some, some little teaser clips on YouTube, but the one I'm most fascinated to see, and there's a lot of good stuff, uh, that's being covered, not good stuff. You know what I mean? Interesting topics, but Mm -hmm. the Dino Bravo murder is something that I don't think has been discussed nearly enough. And I know that you were, uh, somewhat involved in dark side of the ring season two. What can you tell us about Dino Bravo and what went down there? It was very simple. Uh, he, he tried to make money the short, in a shortcut way, illegally selling uh, cigarettes, uh, illegally on the black market there in Montreal. He cut in on somebody's business, somebody meaning, a, a an organized crime person. Uh, and he, he, he went too deep into their territory. And as a result, I'm sure he was warned. I'm sure his, his, uh, resting ego and I'm, you know, I'm fucking Dino Bravo. You can't tell me what to do in Montreal. This is my town, which resulted in him be, becoming, a uh, a target and shot many, many times in the head. Hey, you can bet this. If we, if you watch, uh, like me, I, I've been, uh, binge watching, uh, uh, Law and Order SVU. So I've become this expert now on criminology, Conrad. If you need to know anything, <laughs> I'm your guy. I'm your guy. Uh, but but uh, he, he, he just got in business with the wrong folks. And they killed his ass. And they want to make sure everybody knew he was really going to be dead. There was no, no doubt in anybody's mind. He was, he, was, uh, he was assassinated. Yeah. And he was butchered with bullets. And so... And you, and here's the irony of that. I don't know what happened to the cigarette business in Montreal, the illegal cigarette business, but it seemed like it kind of went, kind of got brushed under the rug. Nobody said nothing about it. Nobody did anything about it. His death was a big story, but bottom line, he tried to make money illegally. He got in the wrong lane. He didn't stay in your lane, bro. He didn't stay in his lane and he got his ass assassinated. Simple as that. It's, 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 I'm overstating the simplicity of it. It wasn't simple when a man gets butchered, but he got butchered, assassinated without a shadow of a doubt. We're killing this guy. And this is going to be a message to anybody else that has the idea that wants to cut in on our business. Find, the mafia deal, mafia thing. Find out more on Vice, Dark Side of the Ring, coming your way. Check your local listings. But uh, I've got it on DirecTV, and, and hopefully you do too. Let's talk about some lawsuits for the WWF. Dave Meltzer would report that, uh, McMahon was suing nails. According to the complaint filed in the Brown County circuit court of Wisconsin, McMahon claimed that nails, uh, perpetrated a violent attack and assault upon him with great force and violence. As a consequence of the attack, the suit claimed that McMahon suffered pain and bodily injury, as well as embarrassment and humiliation. McMahon also claimed the defendant filed a false police report claiming he had been sexually assaulted. And the police report compounded the anguish and humiliation because the police report was published in various media outlets. Uh, before we move on to the other lawsuits, this whole nails situation has been one that's been, uh, whispered about for years and years. I know you weren't there when it happened. Uh, but what did you hear about this story? Well, you know, nails is a little different cat kind of unstable from what I remember. Uh, and he wasn't getting his break. He wasn't getting his push. There it is that push word again. Uh, and he, he felt like that, uh, Vince was personally, uh, subduing his growth. Let me to ask you how smart that really is to think about. Why would you have someone on your payroll and you're paying them and you're traveling them, you're putting them on television. If you want their character to die, 
that's like uh, when WWE was going to do the last few things with Matt Hardy. Well, you know, everybody said, well, they're burying Matt Hardy. That was their intent was to bury Matt Hardy. Right. But from their own mismanagement and lack of attention to detail and lack of common sense, they got Matt Hardy over more on his way out than they did while he was there. He was at doing promos. He was in hot angles. He's with Randy Orton, blah, blah, blah. So you're not burying him. You're getting him over dumbass. And so now Matt Hardy's in AEW, which is going to be great for us, I think. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, Connie, I think that, uh, nails just had this, this vision of him being this major star and being the top heel in the company. And when that didn't come his way, he felt like he had been personally assaulted or attacked. And then he being a very competitive and combative individual, maybe not as stable as some people would like for him to be. I don't, I didn't know the guy that well, right? I was like, you said, I wasn't there, but I know that, uh, the altercation he had with Vince. And then of course he's got to come up with an excuse that man, man, put a you know, uh, hit on him or something. Well, that's stupid. That's just ridiculous. It's just, uh, another deal where, uh, an issue between two people, the Vince and the WWE and, and, uh, and nails, there was the, the communication broke down. They stopped talking. They started, you know, ranting. Uh, it was just bullshit is the way I remember it. But, uh, talents have a funny way of not wanting to accept responsibility for their own success or failure. Let's talk about the next lawsuit. This one's from the ultimate warrior. He's going to file a $5.8 million lawsuit against Titan sports, Vince and Linda. The 19 page lawsuit was filed two weeks ago, uh, in the Eastern district of New York. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you heard coming into the company about dealing with the ultimate warrior. I think back in the day you dealt with him when he was first breaking in the business, but, uh, now he's gone on to be a big star and apparently mm-hmm. has developed a bit of a, a reputation along the way. Yeah. Apparently a bit of a reputation. Uh, I think, uh. I think it was a giant pain in the ass from day one. And again, I, and again, well, JR speaking bad of the dead. Oh, okay. Look, I'm, I'm speaking. Conrad asked me a question. We're talking about a journey here and, and the warrior plays a part in that journey to some degree. Uh, he, he had a massive ego knowing that he was not highly skilled, knowing that his number one selling point was his physique and his charisma that largely was created through music and lights and pyro and things of that nature. He just, and he wasn't a good person in my view. That's my opinion. I thought that he used extremely coarse and abusive language in front of women of all ages. I thought that was ridiculous. I've seen it in my own eyes. I'm not bullshitting or telling somebody's story that, you know, I heard, you know, this is not rumor and innuendo. This ain't Bruce. I'm telling you what I saw. And I didn't think the guy was uh, a good person. So, uh, but he, he always seemed to be at the center of controversy, which is not always good. And he was always centered to be seemingly looking for that easy payday. And, uh, so I didn't have a lot of respect for the ultimate warrior, to be honest with you. I'm sad that he, uh, he passed. I'm glad that he got his moment in the sun before he died. I really am for his fans sake and his family. I'm sad that he left two beautiful daughters and a very lovely wife, uh, upon his death. But we have to be, you know, beyond people may say the same shit about me and you Conrad and we're gone. You know, uh, he wasn't a good guy. And so I didn't have any, anytime there was a lawsuit with him involved, I always was cheering for the, for the other guys. 
because I just thought he was looking for a payday and as simple as that and had little to no respect for our business. And I ain't got a lot of time for guys like that. Let's talk about the last lawsuit in, uh, in WWE land, Vince and Titan sports are suing the New York post and Phil Mushnick for as long as I can remember, Phil Mushnick was a, a thorn in Vince McMahon's side. What do you remember about this sort of weird relationship? It was strange, wasn't it? You know, Mushnick had this hard on, uh, figuratively, I'm assuming, uh, for events and wrestling in general. He was a very, very anti pro wrestling fan. And I think part of it stems to the fact that my belief now is that as a young guy, Mushnick was probably a significant wrestling fan, but the product changed so much from the days of Bruno and Backlund and that, and the typical and the, uh, predictable, uh, WWE presentation, uh, using that the baby face is your, is your, is your champion. Uh, you build everything around your heel, your baby face champion. You have a heel factory. The heels present challenges with the baby face in jeopardy. All of a sudden the baby face then eventually prevails at the end of the day. And the, oops, here comes another challenger all for that coveted championship. So they did things differently in those days. Uh, and I think Mushin may liked it. I really believe that. But then when he saw the other things that were going on, the attitude era, the, the different characterizations, the personalities, uh, he, he, he turned rogue in that regard. And he had, he was a columnist for the post very well read very popular and popular in the sense that he was a heel to a lot of people, but he played it up. And then he knew that wrestling fans were all a little bit crazy about protecting our business and supporting it because we always feel like they're the skinniest kid at fat camp when we're a wrestling fan. So all of a sudden, you know, he's got a whole audience that's breathing down his neck and he loved it. So uh, he fed his own ego and his own persona, but that was all that was. I, I, it was just a, you know, Vince didn't like the guy who nobody liked him. He was trying to hatch at our business. And I think I remember one time he was on a radio show, Mike and the mad dog on WFAN where my friend, Steve Summers says me here, you there, uh, overnights. He used to listen to him a lot. Uh, they, uh, he, they got McMahon and Muchnick on the radio together. And that was one of the most, if you can, if people can find that someplace, if it's, it's, if it's been archived somewhere, it's worth the listen. Uh, cause I think, I don't know who got hijacked. I think Vince wasn't sure that Mushnick was going to be on or vice versa. Mike and the mad dog were good shit disturbers. They were getting high ratings right then. Mike Francis isn't on the air anymore, at least in the WFAN. And of course, Chris Russo is a big star or uh, where my buddies are busted open on Sirius XM. So that was where that was. It got to be personal. And I think, uh, when you heard Mushnick, if you could, if you can find the audio, Conrad, his voice is trembling like a child. He was so intimidated. So he, he seemed to be scared to death to actually be on the phone line with McMahon. It was really a entertaining audio. No doubt. Let's talk about uh, another side of Vince. on March 15th. Vince was going to be honored by the Michael Landon foundation for his philanthropic contributions to charity. And at the same time, the U S justice department is continuing their investigation. This is a weird time for Vince McMahon. Is it not? I mean, on the one hand, you're vilified the New York post. On the other hand, you're being sued by a wrestler or you're having charges brought up by a wrestler saying he sexually assaulted you. And oh yeah, the U S justice department is out to get you. It's uh, it's a weird time that all of these bad things are happening. And now we're going to have a celebration in your honor for all the good you've done for charity. Yeah. Weird stuff, man. Weird stuff. Well, Vince, uh, to be honest with you, uh, sometimes I think he did not use as clear judgment 
as he could have in those that were surrounding him and advising him, uh, you know, even he could, you know, I, I had no issues telling Vince McMahon. No, maybe that's why, uh, we, we ended as we did. Uh, but you know, I always felt like it was my obligation to be honest. And I also believe that I had a good attitude, had a good aptitude for the business. In other words, I, I didn't need Vince McMahon to teach me how to do everything in the wrestling business. Did he teach me a lot? Hell yeah. Without a doubt, but I didn't come empty handed. I didn't come without a background. I didn't come without an education or experiences. And so I think that Vince sometimes just hang around the wrong people. They made bad decisions. He became defiant. He became combative and he felt like he was the king of the world. You know, he's like, uh, on the, on the Titanic, I'm the king of the world. And, uh, and he, he found out that he was not the king of the world and people were very willing to take shots at him because he had not been really sweet to a lot of people on his way up. Let's talk about, uh, some news and notes behind the scenes. Meltzer were right at Owen Hart and Ted DiBiase to the injured list. DiBiase suffered a herniated disc and missed all the shows this past weekend. Well, I haven't heard this from anyone who knows the injury is serious enough that he'll probably be kept out until mania because he has to work that match. Hart blew out his knee on March 8th in a TV match against Bam Bam Bigelow. Don't know the severity, but he was in great pain after the match backstage and was put into a knee brace. DiBiase is in a prime time spot on this WrestleMania nine show. It's the return of Hulk Hogan and, uh, it's a, a, a tag match money Inc versus uh, Hogan and beefcake. And they just set up a big angle where they attacked beefcake and crushed his face and the reconstructed face after the parasailing accident, et cetera, et cetera. Do you remember hearing coming into this show that there may be some question as to whether or not DiBiase could go? Yeah, there was questions about Teddy going, but knowing Teddy, he knew how to work around his injury and he did because he's probably one of the most skilled performers on the entire card. Uh, there was always things going on concerning, uh, the Hogan, uh, uh, presentation. There was always this talk and this secret and then nobody knows this and Hey, this, it was, it, it was almost comical, uh, you know, cause everybody felt like they're more important if their shit is off the radar. Right. And they're only dealing with events where they're more important. And there was a lot of guys that really needed to be more important in those days. And that was the one guy that, that our company at that time, Vince was the guy on everything. Now we understand he still is, but they have different people doing different things there. And we did going forward, not too long after that, including myself. So, uh, uh, he, he just, Teddy was, we knew Teddy was probably going to work, but the Hogan thing, there was always, you know, the. Was it really a jet skiing accent? Was it something? Everything took a life of its own. And then, uh, of course, then, uh, Hogan coming back kind of abruptly. And that changed the booking entirely, uh, at WrestleMania nine with Hogan's, uh, uh, appearance on the card and how they handled. It was like an old mid South or an old Houston wrestling finish where you lose the title and you win it back and blah, blah, blah. So, but Hogan uh, was the straw that started to drink at WrestleMania nine, no doubt about it. Everything was changed to make him happy and to facilitate, uh, that title change. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Meltzer would report several new faces expected in, uh, at or after WrestleMania. Luna with Sean will start most likely as a valet for Shawn Michaels to feud with Sherry. Luna shaved her head and has now been given a new set of extensions for her role as a bizarro type. Brian Clark, who works for SMW as night stalker was the most impressive of the tryouts in the eyes of those who make the decision and was offered a spot. Although he'll be filling out his SMW commitments until that time. He that's was, Smoky mountain wrestling, by the way. That's right. right? And, and we know that, uh, Brian Clark 
is going to go on to be Adam bomb right. uh, eventually. And we also get the news that, uh, Kip Sop and his partner, Mike, who had been working as the lone riders for Eddie Mansfield are going to start after mania doing a cowboy tag team gimmick who we know are going to become Bart and Billy Gunn, the smoking guns. I love this, uh, Conrad, uh, as the long riders, uh, the young, the, uh, smoking guns were called Kip Winchester and Brett Colt. <laughs> yeah. If that's not an expose about how stupid we fucking are in the wrestling business, Kip Winchester and I'm Brett Colt and we are the long riders. Well, shit. God, that's old. Whew. Melsword later report that Mike Shaw and the Harris twins are also going to be offered a contract. Of course, Mike Shaw is going to come in to be Bastion Booger. The Harris twins were the blue brothers. I got to tell you, Jim, this is a weird time in the WWF. Lots of moving and shaking, lots of coming and going. But at this point, we should mention you're not running talent relations. You're simply on air talent. Is that correct? That's right. That's all. And, uh, that was it. Yeah. Mike Shaw. I had a vision for Mike Shaw and WCW that got hijacked because, you know, I think I've made a good call to bring him in. Stu Hart liked the guy. I always, always believed in what Stu told me, uh, Stu gave him a great recommendation because Mike was a big star there in Calgary as mock and sing. I didn't want to get too far away from mock and sing. I want a basic brutal ass heel and, uh, for our, us and WCW. And all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, it became a quasi comedic figure called Norman, the lunatic. So now we're making fun of the mentally ill. He hears these voices and has all these headaches, very, very politically incorrect. And then we took him away from what he did best. And so in other words, that'd be like signing a guy said, well, we got this guy free agency in the NFL. It's all going on now. Big deal. And, uh, and he's got great hands. He caught 80 passes last year. We're going to bring him in and make him a guard. What? What are you doing? He had 80 catches. He's got good hands. He's a receiver. Mike Shaw is a heel. He's a good heel. He's a b- believable heel. He can feed a comeback. So, but instead we make him uh, a, a, a lunatic and a half-assed comedic figure that never got over. Bless his heart. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about the, uh, March to WrestleMania that took place on March 28th, seven days before WrestleMania. It's actually taped on March 7th in Fayetteville, North Carolina. It does a 3.3 rating. Yokozuna beats Randy Savage with a belly to belly suplex. Mr. Perfect beats Skinner with the perfect plex. Kamala beats Kim Chi with a splash money. Inc beats Jerry Sabin and Reno Riggins. Tatanka beats George South, the Bushwhackers and Tiger Jackson beat the Beverly brothers and little Louie. Uh, and the undertaker beats Bam Bam Bigelow by count out. 
we haven't really talked about this before, but the March to WrestleMania being a special, just a special TV event that stands alone on its own. It's not raw. It's not another syndicated show. It's a standalone just to build the hype and anticipation of WrestleMania. Were you around for this one? I mean, obviously this is something that you wouldn't have been, uh, a part of the company for when the actual matches were taped, but the actual video presentation, or do you have your fingerprints on that at all? No, 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 no. I didn't go. I wasn't there. I watched it, you know, obviously for my own, uh, entertainment and education. Sure. But I wasn't, I wasn't there. Uh, so it was pretty basic. It's like a Monday night raw enhanced. So basically, but it yeah. was, uh, it's, that's all. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about WrestleMania nine. Uh, I guess we should uh, start with the funny thing that you sort of teased last week. When did you find out you were going to have to wear a toga in your WWF debut? When I got to Vegas, everybody was going to be in costume and, and, uh, it was just taken for granted that we were all going to be wearing something and anybody that was on camera, cameraman, uh, whatever, you know, monsoon had only gorilla only did introduce me because he was going to do the play by play of the show until he, he came down ill and I got the spot. Uh, Monsoon was in costume for his one shot, you know, Heenan, Savage, uh, all of us, they're on camera, Howard Finkel. Uh, so Finkus Maximus or whatever the hell they called him, uh, good stuff. But yeah, when I got there, didn't care a bit, didn't bother me. You know, uh, this even told me, said, I want you to wear a toga and we're going to all be in costume and I want you to wear a toga. If you have a problem wearing the toga, then don't worry about it. I'll get somebody else to do the show. Seriously. And here I am, you know, 19 years in the business, not no overnight sensation coming out of a very dysfunctional family split, uh, in, in Atlanta and WCW needing to be accepted again, needing to prove that I can still do my job and that those decision makers in Atlanta who thought that I could not do my job any longer were wrong. We all knew they were wrong and we, and I proved that they were wrong for many years to come. Uh, thank luckily enough. So I didn't care, man. I'm, 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 this is a long way from making, you know, $125 a week driving Leroy McGurk around the, my blind owner in his Cadillac. So I, I ain't going to bitch about nothing. Let's just go to work. Let's, uh, let's mention the toga because it does feel like, you know, for better or worse, a lot of folks over the years have said, Oh, the WWF or, oh, in New York, it's corny and they do cartoon presentations and it's for children and blah, blah, blah. Talk to me a little bit about how any of that maybe crossed your mind. You know, when, when guys in the quote unquote, real wrestling business would sort of thumb their nose at WWE stuff. And then fast forward and your first shot here, you're in a toga. Well, I didn't care because they were at the VFW hall or the bingo hall or, or some other hall. I was a WrestleMania Conrad. I was in the first ever outdoor WrestleMania and it wasn't at the motel six outside of Vegas. It was at Caesar's palace. I had the best gig for my role in lot in life professionally that I could ever have doing play by play at WrestleMania. My first assignment was not going to start on was even though it, technically it was challenge, nobody had seen it. So my first, uh, foray on WWE television, WWF television was, uh, at WrestleMania. I had it made, man. I didn't care what anybody else thought. We worry about that too much. And we, it's just not, man, I'm not going to worry about things I can't affect because somebody's always going to bitch about your success 
or, oh, look at that. JR got this gig. Look at him. They made a fool out of him. He was a straight announcer. And now look at this. I was that way for like three hours. Come on. Three hours. And but again, guess the real estate I was standing on was the real estate that nobody else was bitching about it while standing on. So I had no problem with it. Let's talk about gorilla monsoon. We talked about him a lot on mine in your first episode together, but I think it's worth mentioning here that you were probably a little nervous right before you, uh, go out there and gorilla approaches you and asks if you're ready. And you said something like, I'm just trying to remember my lines. And you said, or he said, you're going to do great. And you wrote in your book, monsoon's words were a huge comfort. We had a production meeting the day before, and I wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms by the vast majority of WWF employees. I was known as the voice of the enemy, but gorilla stood out as being friendly and helpful right from the beginning. I know we've touched on this before, but I know you think so much of gorilla. It's worth mentioning again and just having you sort of comment on that. Well, monsoon was such a respected figure, uh, within the, uh, the, the WWE family that, uh, what he said carried a lot of weight. And, uh, I, I know that he stood up for me on many occasions because I was being unfairly judged simply because of where I last worked had nothing to do with the fact that I paid my dues had nothing to do with the fact that I had worked in a territory that I've been on ring crews. I've been referee. I've been a ring announcer. I've been, I've booked buildings. I've done all, a lot of things. In other words, I'd paid my dues and some guys were so used to living in their own world that they had noticed that I had paid my dues o- over almost two decades. So he, he sold that for me. And guys saw that the, a lot of the older guys saw that I was one of the boys I had paid those dues and I, and I deserved to be there. And a lot of them, you know, like my work, they just didn't like me for what I represented, which was the voice of WCW, the voice of the enemy, but monsoon, uh, made the rounds and, uh, you know, the word got out when the word got out that I was going to take his place at WrestleMania nine, this whole story, of course, never is told. So then this, the heat part of the story was left out like, well, and the reason for that is grill is sick, right? He's, he's not able to do the broadcast. So we're going to have him on the broadcast out of respect because he deserves it. He's that father figure, the host type figure. He's going to introduce Jr. and off we go. And that's kind of what happened. So he was, uh, but he, he, he diffused a lot of things, Conrad for me. And so did Heenan. Uh, and so did, uh, Gene Oakland. Those three guys, uh, all respected veterans, hugely talented, and they wanted to work with me as a broadcaster and I, them, but they were very good to have my back. And, uh, my stay in WWE would not have been nearly as positive. if It had not been for those three gentlemen. And certainly in the very beginning, everything was so new. The adrenaline was pumping. I was excited to be there. I mean, you could, have, you could, have, you could have done like somebody did with Lawler one time, uh, shit in his crown, uh, oh. And I probably still would have stayed. Should have they, I didn't have a hat then. So, but nonetheless, I was just happy to be there. Honestly, seriously, it sounds crazy. I wasn't some rookie, but I felt like a rookie. I felt like I was starting all over again and I've been given a new lease on professional life and I was going to take advantage of it and make it work. Let's talk about, uh, what you wrote in your book. You wrote, Randy was challenging to work with right from the get go. I could hear right away that I was going to have to earn my money with macho. He kept me on my toes, not in a negative way. As soon as the pay-per-view began, I had no idea where exactly he was going in this commentary. So it was hard for me to direct traffic before we keep going with what you wrote. Just explain very briefly what you mean, direct traffic. I, I, I understand because you and I've talked about this a great deal, sort of behind the scenes, 
the way it works when you're trying to run a three-man booth, but explain what your role was and what you mean with direct traffic. Simply means that being the point guard, distributing the ball, distributing the lines, lines, distributing the content, getting the other broadcasters, in this case, Savage and uh, Bobby Heenan involved in the dialogue in some, with some sort of symmetry. So at least we may be traveling in different vehicles. We may be traveling at different speeds, but we're all traveling in the same direction headed to the same uh, destination. So that's what directing traffic meant, being a point guard and making sure that we kept the show that we connected the dots with each other. And they were telling good stories that went along with the vision, the visuals that we were seeing on our monitor. You wrote, I had heard that Savage historically was not an overly trusting individual. It was just the nature of his personality. So he committed to working his own style and I had to follow Heenan on the other hand was just the opposite. He was loose and funny and made my job easy. I knew Bobby was good just from watching his stuff on TV. I had no idea how good he was until I sat beside him and went live. The more I thought of all the tools that someone can bring into the wrestling business, I could see nobody who had more to offer than Bobby Heenan. I was a huge fan of his wrestling and on air role as a manager, but now after working with him as an announcer, I left that booth looking at Bobby as the best total wrestling package ever. I knew he was extraordinarily underrated as an in-ring talent. He took the greatest ass whippings in the history of the sport and could feed a comeback as a heel to make a baby face look like Superman as good as any heel I ever saw. Then the very next week after being mutilated and disfigured, he'd get back, back on the microphone and take his heat right back to where it was. He was an artisan. I don't think enough people really talk about this. And I feel like sometimes when people make their Mount Rushmore of wrestling, they just think of in ring performers and maybe because this Mount Rushmore conversation happened so long after Bobby's in ring career, people just don't consider him. But I really do think that Bobby Heenan should start being inserted in that Mount Rushmore conversation. Wouldn't you agree? No, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's very underrated as a wrestler. So people, that's going to go over a lot of people's heads right now. They're listening because they haven't seen that side of Bobby as a worker. He was a, he, for what he did. as I said, being a chicken shit heel that cheated to gain unfair advantages, uh, that, uh, fed a great comeback, uh, whether this is not a deal breaker, but he loved to bleed and he was very effective at using the color dramatically right timing. Uh, his work in the ring was very underrated as, as, as we said, and it, it really goes farther than that. It really was just like, if he was working today, he'd be one of the top heels in all of wrestling. That's how good he was. But then they found out, well, he's such an amazing talker. And he was, we saw that as a manager and then as a color commentator, as a host for a TV show, I just don't know of anybody. And I've been so blessed, you know, working with the Lawlers of the world and the Haymans of the world. Uh, I've been blessed really. And now with the, uh, my, my team at AEW, I haven't been around bad announcers in a long time, but I can, I can only tell you that Bobby Heenan was as good a talent in a, in a multitude of air, uh, uh, areas as I ever worked with. <clears throat> if I had a territory and I had to make a, a, uh, I had, I had a chance to do a, we're going to do a, a territory. We're going to have a, a, a draft selections. I'm going to make sure that my people that are doing the draft have some way to get Heenan on our team because he could do three or four things better than anybody else could do their three or four things. And that's when you get somebody that's extremely valuable because they can, they have more tools than toolbox and just one thing. Let's, uh, let's talk about you for a minute before we get to the matches. How nervous were you? 
working this show. I mean, this is obviously uh, the biggest show you'd ever been a part of, but you'd been a part of big shows before, whether it was the Superdome or some of the big important pay-per-views that WCW had done. This is another level, but it's also a time where there's really not a lot of employment options from here. Yeah. You could go try to get some work in Eastern championship wrestling before it was extreme, but that's really just another indie. And so technically is smoky mountain wrestling guys aren't making major money. You're sort of operating without a net here because of maybe the way you left WCW and this could be sort of sink or swim here. Is it not? You've got to be feeling a lot of pressure. If I had put a lot of time in, uh, worrying about what's next, what happens if I fail, I probably have been a, a nervous as a whore in church. Uh, but I didn't think that <clears throat> my, my thoughts were on preparation, being ready to have the information in my, at my fingertips and be prepared for the show so that I could put my style in play, which is more of an athletic style. It's something a WWE at that time had not done a lot of, they kind of started drifting away from it to be more of the entertainment side of sports entertainment. Uh, so my, my thoughts were Conrad, not on what if I fail, I've never thought that, uh, I'm so egocentric, I guess you could say, but I got confidence in my ability. I think the good Lord blessed me with some abilities in that regard. And I, uh, and I'm grateful for that quite frankly, but I wasn't, I didn't, I was nervous that I would not do it, that I would do a good job. The other thing is <clears throat> the glare of the sun was right on our monitor. So seeing the monitors clearly wasn't thought through. So, uh, I work strictly off the monitor. So that's like doing an empty arena show. There's no reason to look at the arena. I I'm sitting behind my monitor at the announce position, looking at my monitor. That's what I watch and what you put on the monitor, Mr. Director, then that's what I'm going to, I'm going to uh, put a, a soundtrack to. So that's kind of where I was. So the monitor was very, very important. And I couldn't see the monitor because until the sun went down farther, secondly, uh, being outside different deal, different air, a different, uh, not a different air, different, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. The acoustics were different. Uh, again, uh, it's just a different environment. Being outdoors is a different environment. We're not talking about being in a dome. We're talking about being outside on the stars and on the sun. So that's, uh, I was more concerned about that than failing. And what, what, what happens if I fail? Because again, I had great confidence in my, uh, ability to tell stories. And I had a great uh, partner in Jan and, uh, I, she and I were dating at that time and always getting great positive reinforcement from her, which is every man needs from his partner or vice versa. Every woman needs from their partner, positive reinforcement, communicate with me. So I knew I was going to be okay. Couldn't tell you what the hell I was going to do if this thing didn't work out, but I figured I could figure out something. And, uh, but luckily it, uh, it worked out pretty good. And, but I was just more worried about executing the show. I think Bruce was my, uh, producer. So Bruce is in my ear. And of course, Bruce and Vince being mischievous, uh, had to have their share of ha ha, as they say, the Pat Patterson word, ha ha. Uh, and they had to, you know, they had their, their little shit and Bruce, you know, trying to edge me, egg me on to go harder and faster. And, and that was just Vince there in his ear. Uh, but it was annoying as shit. Uh, and it did help the broadcast. But it was funny to them. So they entertained themselves. Cool for that. But I was in my zone, man. I was ready to roll because this show was not, this show was a complicated show with multiple stories to tell and ever changing stories within the main structure of the theme of the show. So 
it was all he could say grace over, but I was just, I was only focused on kicking ass, kicking ass. And if I was going to go, and after the show was over, Hey, look, two more, one more pay-per-view and I was gone again. Right. So I'm saying to myself, Hey, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know if big man's going to like my work or not. I sound like I sound. I look like I look what the fuck. And he may like it. He may not, but I'm going to, I'll tell you this. I'm going to work my ass off at WrestleMania nine and I'm going to do the very, very best job that I can and let the cards fall where they may. That's all we can do. It's like this goddamn virus. Nobody knows where it's going to end, stop, start, you know, subside, whatever. It's up to us to live every day in a smart, intelligent way. And don't worry about next week because you can't figure on next week. We're in unprecedented territory. And I was in unprecedented territory there. I'd never seen in person at WrestleMania. I'd never worked a live show for WWE. I mean, you know, the last live show I did was a class of champions. So it was a, it was a, it was a monumental day. I, I, I'm so thankful I got to live through all that and it was stressful as shit, but I'm glad I got to experience it. It made me a better broadcaster and a better employee. I think, uh, the first match on the card is a dark match. It's Tito Santana and Papa Shango. Uh, Meltzer would say that, uh, Papa Shango missed a splash off the top rope in eight minutes. And he was told it's a dud. Luckily you can actually watch this. Believe it or not, it was filmed. And very recently the, uh, the footage was released. I guess it first popped up maybe 10 or 12 years ago, but it popped back up late last year. And it's got your commentary on it where you can tell where you guys are trying to just sort of find your, your footing and, and get comfortable and work out some technical details. Cause it is a live broadcast and it is outdoors. And so this dark match represented an opportunity to sort of try that. Uh, have you seen that, that footage that's popped up in the more recent years? No, I have not seen it. I announced you, you mentioned it. I'll try to find it and watch it, but no, I haven't seen it. Conrad be fun to watch it one time though. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have some audio here on the show from that clip. Uh, but I think that, uh, fans will dig sort of getting to hear the behind the scenes before the first match begins. Of course they have the opening ceremony. Jr. and Toga is introduced then followed by Randy Savage and Bobby Heenan, who makes uh, his own grand entrance. It's uh, been billed as the biggest toga party ever. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a weird and interesting look. You can uh, certainly appreciate the spectacle. And, uh, I gotta wonder the, the camel spot, the way Heenan came in, how much of that was rehearsed? How much of that is just on the fly improv? Cause working with animals is, is definitely a big variable. That's just Heenan all the way. Decided to be funny, come out backwards, you know, scared to death. That's just him. Uh, no, it wasn't. I don't, I don't, we rehearsed the day before doing some things, but I don't, I don't recall that being rehearsed. I think that was a Heenan and audible and, and as usual, it worked. Well, our first match, this is our third WrestleMania in a row where Shawn Michaels is the opening match on the broadcast. Tatanka would beat Shawn by count out in 18 minutes and 30 seconds. So Shawn keeps the intercontinental title. He's going to come out with his new valet slash manager, Luna Vashon, while sensational Sherry's in Tatanka's corner. And they're pushing the debut of Vashon pretty hard here. Um, ultimately it gets three and a half stars. Meltzer would write the finish came when Michaels missed a crossbody off the apron, fell on the floor. Referee Joey Morella was counting out Michaels, who then knocked him down. Uh, Michaels got back into the ring, but Tatanka uh, hit a Samoan drop, covered him for the pin, but Morella gets up, calls for the bell, ruling that Michaels was the loser by count out. Meltzer would say, very weak finish to what was an excellent opener. After the match, Luna clotheslined Sherry and kicked her a few times. And later in the show, they announced Luna had attacked Sherry in the first aid room as well. 
What'd you think? I mean, you got two capable talents. Anytime there's Shawn Michaels on WrestleMania, you know, he's going to give you his all, but having sort of a count out finish feels kind of lame as a way to start a WrestleMania. Uncreative, unnecessary, unexplicably stupid. If you, if you say, well, we didn't want to beat Sean or we're giving Tatanka his push, but you don't want to beat him. Then why did you fucking book the match? Why do you book a match for two guys to go out there and have a great match? And then they finish shits all over it. Why would you do that? You wouldn't, if you're thinking, and, uh, there's no reason it should have been a, a winner in that match, finish in that match and not be convoluted. That's not how you start off the show because that kind of led to the way, the way the whole show was, was booked. This created that and this did that. And this was confusing and this, we didn't expect this. This is impromptu, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but I know that they worked on shot. Sh- there was some in our notes you saw there where Melster talked about the fact that I was able to talk about Sean's separated shoulder as it related to Tatanka using a hammerlock as a basis in the story of the match, which WWE had normally not acknowledged. It wasn't that closely called. And I think that was, uh, the first time that my style was, 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 uh, illustrated in on WWE television was in that very first match with Sean versus Tatanka. And the fact that, uh, Tatanka's working a, a hammerlock to exploit the injured shoulder of Sean Michaels. If you go back and look at that, I think you'll hear that pretty prominently. Next up, we've got the Steiner brothers working with the head shrinkers. The Steiner brothers pick up the win in 14 minutes and 22 seconds, two and a half stars. Um, the thing that everybody talks about in this, well, Meltzer even covers it here. He says, First big spot was Samu doing what appeared to be a hot shot or a stun gun, whatever you want to call the move on Scott, but Fatu had pulled the ropes down and Scott wound up taking a nasty bump on the floor and it does look brutal. Uh, Scott's then pounded on for the next seven minutes of change. The heat spot went a little long for the live crowd and made the match drag towards the end. Rick tagged in, but was quickly cut off several hot moves towards the end, including Rick on Fatu's shoulder with Samu coming off the top of the cross body. And then Rick turning in midair into making the move a flying power slam. Although it sounds better than it looked. Scott would pin Samu after a Frankensteiner, which missed noticeably. So a less than ideal finish here, maybe a botched finish, but a scary spot to start the match. And, uh, the Steiner brothers having their WrestleMania debut here, just like you. And uh, you're very familiar with the Steiners having worked with them for a long, long time. What'd you think of the match all these years later, watching it back for the first time in a long time? Well, it wasn't the best Steiner's match I'd seen or did see, uh, but it wasn't bad. You know, I love their chemistry with the head shrinkers, uh, two tough teams, physical, big athletic. I love that, uh, two and a half stars, probably about right, but it should have been better. But, uh, I was very happy that Rick and Scott had elevated their game to where they were in WWE, WWF. And, uh, but you know, it, I, I was a little, and look, going back and watching it, I could see where it could have been better, but was it bad? Hell no. It wasn't bad at all, but I, I really have great respect for both those teams. And that would have been the match where they could have really made a huge impact at a major event. And they didn't do it. They missed their opportunity to maximize their minutes by getting two and a half stars on Meltzer's rating. Talk to me a little bit about the Steiner brothers. Why don't you think they were a better fit? for the WWE. I mean, these guys had tremendous success everywhere they went. And then for whatever reason here, it just feels a miss. 
Well, I don't know that the Steiners were ever a great fit in WWE. Uh, maybe that's what you said. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, it's a matter of booking philosophies and, uh, what you stress and what you, you know, it's who you book them with. Uh, the, the Steiners, or I, I believe the Steiners are one of the great tag teams of my generation that I, that I had ever seen and worked with, uh, great athletics, real, the real, you can't see through their bullshit. Uh, they were athletic and fit. Hey, I saw, I, re, I met, uh, where was I the other day? Was it Atlanta? I think it was in Atlanta. I met uh, Rick Steiner's son and he came up and introduced himself to me uh, back there in the locker room area. And, uh, uh, of course, I didn't recognize him. I, I hadn't seen him since he was like in grade school. <clears throat> and, uh, I guess he's trying to hook on with an NFL team as a free agent, but, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that there's another Steiner, uh, in the pipeline, uh, when he's come along or if he comes along, I guess it still remains to be seen, but a good, good kid. I sure as hell would, I, I wish AEW would take a look at him at some point in time, if that's ever in the cards, but nonetheless, they were never booked great in, uh, in, in WWE simply because of just different philosophy. They, they play with the wrong team with their, with their game plan. Let me, uh, let me ask you, do you think that's because, and I know I'm reaching here a little bit, but do you think it was their background and being these great amateur wrestlers and wearing the letterman jackets? And it was very realistic. Meanwhile, the WWF's creating cowboys and Adam bomb. It just feels like it, that for whatever reason, doesn't line up with Vince's vision. He wants over the top characters, not necessarily badass, legitimate collegiate athletes. Yeah, you're right. Uh, he wanted to make sure that the entertainment side is the sports entertainment roster in WWE was fully stocked. And, uh, and, 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 but if you book the Steiners, the right teams, I mean, my goodness gracious, you, you, you're just printing money because their, their matches are going to be extraordinary. And, uh, but that wasn't the case. So yeah, I think there's probably something to be said about that Conrad, that the Steiners did not fit the ideal mold that Vince envisioned his superstars to have. And, uh, because they were basically just simple extensions of their own personality, which I always believe was, they had another guy come along named Steve Austin, not too many years after that was the exact same thing that, that kind of blew the whole son bitch wide open. So I'm not a big believer in that. We can entertain ourselves right into, uh, riches and all that. You still got to deliver the steak in my opinion. Well, here comes some entertainment. We've got crush and doink the clown out next eight minutes and 28 seconds. Doink gets the win. Meltzer would say not much crowd reaction for a grudge match that was pushed so hard. Uh, and I guess we should mention these guys have been after each other for a long time where, you know, we had the, the hurt arm and the fake arm and. Eventually a second doink who we now know is Steve Kern, the former Skinner. He's going to shave off his beard to play the role here. He's going to be the second doink who's been hidden under the ring since before the show started and stayed under there until, uh, even after the show was over, even after all the fans had left the building, um, it gets a star and a half here. What'd you think of the creative? It's definitely, definitely a different presentation than what you were used to too much. Ha ha. That's what it was. And so it's easy for me to say that. And it's easy for somebody like Bruce or somebody else that was there to say, well, wait a minute. That's what we built our brand on. Our brand is more entertainment than sports. Okay. That's fine. I don't just, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I don't have to like it. I don't have to love it. 
I can work hard. I can support it. I can try to do the great narrative of what you're showing me on my a video, on my television monitor, but I don't have to like it. And that's a, a situation where we got about in that 93, that era, man, it was a gimmick city. It was just trying to reaching and stabbing out, lunging out to find something that would get hot. And it's ironic that what got hot was reality based wrestling, not doinks and two doinks and three doinks and all this other shit. This didn't, but that was the vision that Vince and his inner circle had, because once the inner circle found out what Vince liked, you goddamn better believe that's what they're going to roll with. Mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones. Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast. Most items can ship overnight. Plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Yeah. Well, that's what they do here. Uh, As we said, uh, Doink gets the win. Uh, star and a half. Let's go to the next match. And this one is, uh, well, maybe one of the forgotten matches it's razor Ramon and Bob Backlund. They only go three minutes and 45 seconds. Um, fans are going to cheer Ramon here. Meltzer would say it's probably the first pinfall loss that Backlund has ever done in the WWF. And that must date back to like 1977. Uh, we should mention the reason it's so short is, uh, Ramon is coming off of arthroscopic knee surgery back on February 26th. Either way, Meltzer called the match terrible and gave it a negative one-star rating. It's a big deal to see Bob Backlund lose, but I don't know that this audience knows that. And, they don't. Uh, they don't. They don't just, know. It's a less than ideal situation. What can you tell us about it? Well, it's boring. Uh, you wonder why the match was held. For fans that knew who Bob Backlund was, it was abrupt. For fans that didn't know who Bob Backlund was, it didn't make a shit. And, uh, razor should have had somebody that he could, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the characterization of razor at that time was. I'm assuming he's, they're trying to make him a heel, but man, it's hard to get a, uh, a cool, uh, heel over. That's not, if they're cool and you can relate to them and you want to be cool as well, then that ain't somebody you're going to boo. So I, I thought it was poor booking. Uh, terrible is a nice simple word to describe it. Next up, we've got the, uh, the match that everybody is most curious about because of all the rumor and innuendo it's Ted DiBiase and IRS, uh, retaining their tag titles, beating Hulk Hogan and Brutus beefcake by DQ. They go 18 minutes and 27 seconds. All the talk before the bell rings though, was about Hulk Hogan. His left eye is shut. Meltzer would say on TV, they gave a cover story that he was working out in the gym the night before the match and was attacked. The story going around was he was involved in a boating accident on Wednesday night. Although everyone who saw him up close said it looked like someone punched him in the eye. The injury was legit, not makeup. Although the reasons aren't clear. And when asked after Hogan said, he didn't want to talk about it. Talk to me a little bit about 
the rumor and innuendo. It's the old telephone, telegram, telewrestler. Lots of rumors over the years that this is Macho Man closing this eye up for him because they had some heat over a situation with uh, the divorce that was uh, happening with with Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth and maybe the real life role that Hulk Hogan and his wife played in that. Divorces are nasty and messy, and I guess that's believable that something like that could happen. Uh, again, not any implication given that there was any sort of relationship with Elizabeth and Hulk, just saying their wives were friends. You know what I mean? But there's still yep. uh macho man being this volatile individual who's maybe not so trusting it passes the smell test, but Hogan has always maintained, no, it was a, a, a drunken boating accident and the, uh, the jet ski popped him in the eye and came back for him. So before you knew all the details, what were the whispers uh, that day on the show? The same old bullshit, you know, some sensationalistic story that the wrestlers could, uh, they all should be bookers because that once they get a little German, Hey, you think maybe, Hey brother. He said, his, you know, so that's all it comes a, it comes as another act of fiction. I have no idea what happened. I'm more inclined to believe it was a, uh, jet ski accident, yeah. which is not nearly as exotic or nearly as cool or nearly as a dirt sheet friendly as Randy Savage popping Hogan and shutting his eye. I doubt that that ever happened. Quite frankly, I don't know. I wouldn't get on court to swear either way, but I, I, if I had to, if I had to say one way or the other, I would say it was the jet ski and nothing else. Of course we see Hulk Hogan knock out DBIC and IRS with the mask that, uh, beefcake was wearing here. Hogan has DBIC pinned while beefcake has IRS pinned. Then Jimmy Hart puts on a referee jacket and counts the fall, hands the belt to Hogan and beefcake, but the ref comes to and disqualifies them when he sees Jimmy in the ring, uh, heart through the ref, uh, out of the ring after the match. And then we see, uh, the, uh, IRS briefcase open up and they find money inside, start handing it to fans at ringside. Lots of Gaga as Pat would say in this one, huh? Straight out of Memphis, straight out of Memphis, Jimmy Hart, that big brute throwing the referee physically out of the ring was more than most mortal men could handle. <laughs> it's just, it was just a convoluted finish and the Meltzer gave it two stars. I don't know. I, I, he must, he, he was being kind. He must've had his herbal tea that afternoon because it was, it was, if it was two stars, that's all it was. It could have been so much better, but it was overbooked and overbrothered, and I didn't like it. Overbrothered. shout out to a few guys who know that one on the March 21st edition of WWE wrestling challenge. It was mentioned in short or in story terms that, uh, the nasty boys, Brian knobs and Jerry sags were in line to face money Inc for the titles, but they in quote unquote stepped aside for Hogan and beefcake. So we had to have a reason to give these guys a shot at the title. Of course, we know the storyline reason they have an issue, but why would the tag titles be on the line? Well, because the nasties gave them the shot. Uh, let's keep it going. Lex Luger and Mr. Perfect. They go 10 minutes, 56 seconds. Uh, this gets a star and a quarter. Um, Meltzer would say the finish was a backslide, although perfect was in the ropes. He says Luger has his best ring entrance coming in with four bikini clad women and holding four mirrors with sparklers coming from them. But he says the two guys just didn't work well together. And I think that's apparent when you watch it. I mean, Mr. Perfect is one of the all time best. I don't know that he's at his best right here, but still on his bad day, he can give you a pretty decent match, but that looks challenged here. It doesn't look like this is, uh, 
a good match. I don't know if that's necessarily a stylistic thing, or is it just Luger's rusty or it's perfect rusty or a combination of both. Either way though, what's gone is the torture rack finish. Now Luger is doing, uh, I have a metal plate in my forearm and I'm going to knock you out with that. By the way, he does actually have uh, very legitimately a metal plate in his forearm from a motorcycle accident, but, uh, they're even doing a, an x-ray gimmick where they're going to show that. Hey, he, this is real. He really does have a plate here. So I like the realism aspect of that, but the old school fan in me does miss the torture rack. I just think that's synonymous with Lex Luger. You watched this one back for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? Uh, underwhelmed. Goddamn, I'm sounding negative when they showed it. I don't mean to be folks. I mean, it's one of the most important key days of my career being a part of WrestleMania nine, but we got to be honest about this thing. And why not? It's, it's a nice trend to have in pro wrestling, a little honesty occasionally. Uh, it wasn't a great card. It looked great on paper. The guys that booked the card, Vince and Pat and Bruce, uh, the, on paper, it looked like a, a, a excellent attraction. But the, the, the matches did not deliver to their capabilities. Uh, you know, like I said, the, and the finishes are part of that. The convoluted finishes with, you know, uh, uh, beefcake is average worker at best. Uh, Hogan had his, his issue with the, the, the face deal. DiBiase's coming off of surgery and then you got a healthy, uh, IRS. So I think it was healthy, but that match, even though all this, all the bad things were, 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 were facing it was not good. You know, you go back to Backlund and, and, uh, and, and the razor, not good. Did it look good on paper? Yeah, it's interesting. Get a laugh out of it. Oh, there's a bad guy. He's a good new heel. And it's all common sense. So we get the new heel, a win over one of the greatest uh, baby faces in the history of WWE, the, the immortal Bob Backlund. It shit to bed. So, and I think that's the same thing here. Lex did not have the nature to work with on a big match. And as much as I love Kurt Hennig, I love working with him as a broadcaster. I think he was one of the most gifted in-ring performers I have ever seen in my life, but Kurt Henning was not Ric Flair and Lex Luger on that stage at WrestleMania needed Ric Flair and he wasn't there. So I, I thought the match to it was, was a disappointment quite frankly, because they both could have had better outings, but, but again, why do we, maybe, maybe Hall should have worked with perfect, you know, in, in, in hindsight, but right. bottom line, it was a, it wasn't a very good. It wasn't a very good outing and, 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 and the hits just keep on coming because the next match was not a very good outing. <laughs> Before we get there, let's talk about Lex's presentation here. Of course, Vince wants to change everything that, that somebody else was doing. So he can't just come in as the total package, Lex Luger. He comes in as the narcissist. Uh, eventually he pivots from there and decides Lex shouldn't be a heel. He should be our next Hulk Hogan. He should be our next baby face. So they go with the great American version of Lex Luger during the Lex express tour. what do you think of the narcissist gimmick? And, uh, why do you think Vince was so averse to just going with what we knew with these guys? Insecurity. He had to be the creator of everything. And, uh, unless you get a talent like Austin or the rock, who's going to create their own image and going to, going to let, let their image evolve in their own view and their own vision. Uh, that's what you get. You get plumbers and you get truck drivers and you get trash men and you get all these things. And then you get a narcissist 
And to be quite frank about it, and I don't mind to speak to my ignorance sometimes, uh, I, what the fuck does narcissist mean? He asked an average wrestling fan in that era, give me your definition in 25 words or less of a narcissist. Well, it wouldn't take him 25 words to tell you. I ain't got a goddamn clue. <laughs> so it was just like a, are you kidding? So the narcissist, that's someone who is in love with themselves. We all knew that about Lex over the years, but nobody ever thought it was going to draw any money. And guess what? It didn't. It didn't. All right. Next up, the one that, uh, Bruce Pritchard says the undertaker will never forgive him for the undertaker gets a win over giant Gonzalez in seven minutes and 33 seconds by DQ Meltzer says I could have been a lot worse. Campy moment of the show was when Ross was talking about the steps being solid steel after the undertaker took a bump into him. He then took a second bump into him and knocked him upside down. And it was completely hollow. Oops. Second campy moment was Ross talking about him being eight foot tall when a year earlier. He was saying seven foot seven. Jesus. Harvey Whippleman gave Gonzalez a towel and he smothered undertaker with it on TV. They said it had chloroform, but nobody in the live audience understood what was going on. Gonzalez is DQ'd, and he did a great yeah. choke slam on his caretaker, Bill Alfonso undertaker is uh, stretchered out and left for dead, but comes back to life and knocks Gonzalez out of the ring. Gonzalez will sell tickets, but not for long star in a quarter. This is another guy that you worked with both of these guys, actually in WCW. Um, the thing that sticks out a lot here sticks out to me, but the biggest piece is caretaker Bill Alfonso. I've heard over the years that it was Harvey Whippleman that took care of Elegante was Bill Alfonso doing that duty here. He was around. Yeah, he was around. Harvey became, uh, George Gonzalez's, uh, caretaker because it was perceived that Harvey was more dependable and reliable and had less chance to have any issues. And, uh, Bill, good old happy go lucky Bill Alfonso. Fonzie was a good ref, uh, love the business. No doubt about that, but he, he, he enjoyed, uh, the good life party life. So, but he was there in the early going, uh, I just never could understand, but wrestling people booking, uh, sometimes you got this amazing resource in this undertaker character, right? Why would you put him in the ring with a guy that, oh, based on simply passing skill set tests would fail because he didn't have the fundamental skills, uh, that he needed to conduct a safe wrestling match. And then you, to make it even more, to take your eye off the prize, we, we make it a, a, a sleight of hand presentation chloroform, you know, all this bullshit. And, and then, uh, and then it was a disqualification finish. Gee, many Christmas. I just don't again, overthought, overthought. It's like somewhere along the way that triumphant and WWE believe that anybody that loses is damaged goods. And that's our fault. If you select talent to work for you, that aren't good enough performers to lose, then you're wrong in hiring them. So, uh, uh, but I, I think George should not have been on the card. Undertaker should have been taken care of better. I can see why Bruce tongue in cheek says Undertaker's never going to forgive him. I'm sure Taker's forgotten that, uh, that fiasco, but I had so much respect for Undertaker. I felt sad. I felt helpless that I couldn't help him more. And yeah, maybe I'm trying to give a steps all steel to make it look like a more devastating bump because he's not going to get anything from Gonzalez. that's going to resemble anything devastating. And he's the undertaker. 
you got to protect him as you can and where you can. That's all I was trying to do. Campy or not, Dave. <sighs> John Gonzalez, um, as we've talked about in your run with WCW, he was elegante there. And Jim Cornette has told a story where you guys see him sitting somewhere and, uh, you say, Jim, this is our new giant. How much, uh, how much of Eligante and giant Gonzalez being in the business rests on your shoulders? Oh, not, not that much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I'm like anybody else. If you don't look, here's what you got. You got a guy that's seven feet plus seven, 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 five, seven, four, where the fuck he was. Okay. He's on the, he's on the, uh, he's on the, I think Argentina is Argentina. I think, uh, national basketball team. So you assume if a guy's going to play on international competition, i.e. the goddamn Olympics, that he has some athletic ability. Well, guess what? Not here. He was, he was a space holder, get on the low block in basketball, get some rebounds and don't get in the way block, don't block up the middle. Don't let him drive the lane. That's what he did. So, uh, and we saw the guy and I'm thinking, well, here's the deal. Cornette may be left out. We're told we're going to hire the guy. This is not me saying, well, I think we should hire that guy. Corny. He could be our next Andre. He could be our Andre bullshit. How would I know that? All I know knew was we're going to hire the, the basketball player that the Hawks gave up on. And we're going to train him to see if, what his aptitude might be as far as pro wrestling presentations are concerned. And if we can make him a, a rarely seen attraction that could do three or four basic things. That's all he needs to do three or four basic things. Then we could book around that and have with a reoccurring role on television, not every week, not every two weeks, but a reoccurring role, but that all went to hell. And all of a sudden, you know, we find a guy who has no aptitude, you know, he's, he's, he's more worried about finding, finding a girlfriend. And at the end, at the end of the day, uh, good old Harvey Whippleman was sending money to Gonzalez to feed Gonzalez's family because he had not saved his money. He made good money. He had not saved his money. He had taken care of all his family members as, as I'm led to believe. And Harvey, God bless him on his salary was sending money to uh, the guy that was in this main uh, this attraction match at WrestleMania versus the undertaker. It's a lot deeper story than, than we we've told, but, uh, it's a sad thing that, uh, and then George, of course, dying young and, uh, I don't I remember what, what he had some illness, uh, sadly. But a nice guy, but God almighty, we're, we're, we should have known in the training stages, the, we should have known early on Conrad, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it, but we were not going to take no for an answer. It's the old American way. By God, if we can, we can make this work. Then of course he goes to WWE, WWF. And of course, Vince, the, the, the great rebuilder, well, I'll, he'll, I can get him over. These other guys, those, those, those hayseeds in Atlanta might not be able to, but by God, I can, well, try again. Let's try again and talk about the main event here. One of the most hotly debated situations in company history, certainly in this era, Yokozuna and Bret Hart, Bret Hart is going to come in as world champion. Uh, he's supposed to be the next guy. Yokozuna beats him in eight minutes and 55 seconds. Meltzer would write because of the huge size difference, it looked visually impossible for them to work a credible match, but they did. I was shocked that Hart didn't uh, at least have his head, his head taped to give the illusion because of the angle they ran earlier in the day. 
It was WCW like to not pay attention to detail. Campy spot of the matches where the USA chants were going. And the only American in the ring was Yokozuna. Heenan points out that neither of the two men are from the U S and Hart pulls off the padding from the turnbuckle ram Joko into the exposed steel and puts him in the scorpion. But then Mr. Fuji wears salt in Brett's eyes and Yoko covers him for the pin three stars. So before we talk about the rest, uh, you've often said here on the show that you don't want to know finishes. You want to be surprised and call it live. Did you know that, uh, Hey, we're going to take the strap off of Brett here. I knew that their plans were for Hogan to leave the show as a champion, Okay, but he wasn't even in a match. So to tell you, I knew what was going to happen would be a lie. I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew in general terms that by the end of the night, when the sun set on, on WrestleMania nine, that Hogan would be leaving as the champion. And, uh, but I didn't know the, the, uh, fortuitous route that we were going to take to get there. So no, I didn't know. I didn't need to know. I just need to see, I just need to be able to get the sun to go down a little bit more so I can see my monitor and let, and let the car what, call what we saw. But thanks to Brett and Yoko, uh, they made chicken salad out of some chicken shit with a less than a nine minute match. You got three stars so far. It's the best match on the card. As far as star ratings are concerned, is it not? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I thought it was a, that, that it was a little, it was a respite that we needed. And I, and I give credit to, to Brett Hart and to Yokozuna for, for that. They always had amazing chemistry. I could watch them work all day long. Brett knew exactly how to work with Yoko to, to amplify and to accentuate Yoko's size and strength advantage and his, his athleticism for a 600 pound guy. And uh, Brett was just Brett. I mean, there's Brett Hart's just one of those guys that, uh, you, you can't say to me, well, I know a guy that's a better worker than Brett Hart show right. him to me. Right. And bring your best argument because I don't believe it, but that, that's what it was. And, and you know, I know Brett had a lot to say about it too. I guess we should mention technically Tataka Shawn Michaels got three and a half stars. This one gets three. Okay. But before we keep moving, let's quickly mention that the first match on the show is a count out. Uh, the second match on the show is a clean finish with the Steiners. The third is a clean finish with Doink, but not really. There's a second clown, so technically some shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Then we get razor and Bob Backlund. That's a clean finish money, Inc and Hogan. Uh, that is a DQ undertaker and giant Gonzalez. That is a DQ, a screw job finish here for Yokozuna too. There's just so much fuckery in these finishes. And at this point, the fuckery gets to a whole new level. Hogan comes out and, uh, Fuji challenges him immediately for the title. And Hogan's act is acting as if he's more concerned with Brett than getting the title. And then Brett tells him, no, take the match and the title. Fuji tries to throw the salt. Of course, Hogan ducks clothesline leg drop one, two, three new champion in all of 21 seconds. That of course gets a dud. Oh man. We should lay the groundwork. I guess Brett wrote on April 2nd, 1993, I brought Stu and Helen with me to Vegas for WrestleMania nine, where my mom was also having a family reunion with her, her four sisters. Stu beamed to once again, finding himself the center of the sister's attention, uh, as he had been when he first fell in love with all of them in the forties in long beach, New York. Attaboy Stu. I've got a feeling Conrad. There may be a little of blue chew in the, in the mix here somewhere. <laughs> I left them to reminisce and went to my room just in time to answer a call from Vince who asked me to come to his suite to talk. I knocked on his door and he answered it with that goofy grin. We sit down and Vince says, this is what I want to do. I want you to drop the belt to Yoko tomorrow. 
and this is not what I expected. I sat there dumbstruck as he went on to explain how Fuji would screw me by throwing salt in my face, blinding me. And after Yoko was handed the belt, Hogan would rush to my aid. And in some kind of roundabout way, Hogan would end up winning the belt from Yoko right then and there. Like I was handing Vince my sword. I told him I appreciated everything he did for me and I'd do whatever he wanted. And Vince said, don't get bitter. I still have big plans for you. And sound bites flashed through my mind of Vince assuring me that I was the long-term champion and not to worry about Hogan, who he still hadn't even spoke to yet. Uh, as I stood up to leave, I asked, did you take the belt from me? Because I didn't do a good enough job. And Vince said, of course not. I'm just going in a different direction. It's still onwards and upwards for you. Nothing is going to change too much for you. I was totally crushed. As I lay in bed that night, the more I thought about what Vince had in mind for Hogan, the more I felt it would completely backfire on both of them. The hokey finish would stink. Maybe not immediately, but in the weeks to come, my fans, who were the biggest contingent in Vince's paying audience at the time, would gag on it. There was something different about my fans. They really believed in me as a person. And by the time I got to the dressing room the following afternoon, word that I was losing the title had already leaked out to the boys. Most of them were quiet and some were angry. Nasty boys, Sean, Taker, and others expressed utter disappointment knowing I was losing the belt. Didn't stop me from planning on having a great match. I went over everything with Yoko and designed the match so that all of the best moves were left for the final minute. And then Hulk arrived with his entourage, his wife, his manager, Brutus beefcake and Jimmy Hart. Clearly he'd been in the know all along, probably from the first day he came back. And now you think Hogan's going to come back Conrad, not knowing Gordon will be the champion. Come course, on. Of course. Come on. God, it's so, it's, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, the, the deal was done before Brett found out about it. I, at least I don't know that, but I'd bet money on it. So, uh, you know, Bruce, could, that should be a good show. Maybe Bruce and I should do a show together about this today. Well, we did talk about this, and Bruce and I got pretty hot. Uh, it's in the archives or something to wrestle if you want to check it out. But the last line here that Brett wrote is, Now he was suddenly acting like my long-lost pal and wearing a big smile that rightfully belonged to me. So even though you're new to the company, when do you first hear, Hey, we're taking it off of uh Brett and we're somehow going to find a way to get it on Hogan day of the show. That's all you know, what we're doing. Don't you No. Well, uh, Hogan's going to get the belt. That's what I heard. Okay. Hogan's Hogan's going to leave as a champ again. That suited my needs perfectly. I, I, I believe in my instincts. I believe in, in, in uh, my product knowledge. And my love of the game still this very goddamn day, the love of the game has not left me and it had not left me at WrestleMania nine. If you put it on the, on the monitor, I think I can describe it and add a narrative that is uh, respectful to what the image that we're seeing. So that's where I was. All I knew was it was going to be a wild west show, uh, a little, little, uh, uh, little extemporaneous stuff going to go, uh, going to be going on. But as it was explained to me, maybe by Bruce, but Jim, it's not that cause that's for Jr. But Jim, it's not that much different than a mid South show. Cause it, that's what Watts would do things like that. You know, switch a belt on the first part of an hour and lose it again on the last part of the hour to the guy that he wanted on to begin with. So it's just, it just, uh, it was just information. I didn't need to be overridden with <clears throat> because it was very political in nature. And Hogan had not endeared himself to a lot of the guys that were against this, uh, particular creative happening. So, and that's neither here nor there. That was before I got there in the whole nine yards, <clears throat> pardon me, but that Hogan didn't, he had issues, uh, with, with some of the guys that felt, felt like Brett was deserving of a better deal. 
Let's uh, let's keep it going. We should mention that Brett has claimed that Yoko called for the match to go home early, which wound up editing out a lot of their best spots. And Brett wasn't happy about that, but he also wrote after the match. A few minutes later, Hogan came up to me excited and happy and said, thank you, brother. I won't forget it. And I'll be happy to return the favor. I looked to my old friend in the eye and said, I'm going to remember that Terry. <laughs> and, uh, I guess I'll, I should bring this up because Brett has said that he was led to believe there's going to be a Hulk Hogan versus Bret Hart match at SummerSlam 93 with Hulk putting him over in the middle of the ring for the title. He's even said, we took promo pictures of us sort of playing tug of war with the belt. Hulk has said he never agreed to do that. And the deal was made for him to win the title from Yoko and then drop it back to him, which is exactly what happened a few months later at the King of the ring pay-per-view. Of course, uh, uh, Bruce has said, and you can hear all this in the archives that the reason they did the switch is because they felt like Hogan would mean more on their European tour. Uh, if he was on the cards of uh, working with Yoko and the title was on the line, uh, what say you, did you ever hear that Brett and, and Hulk were supposed to work at SummerSlam 93? I'm sure Brett was, that was inferred to Brett, but you can't convince me that, that Hogan and Yoko at a four or five minute main event in Europe was going to be more than Bret Hart meaning in Europe, uh, with Yoko Zuna in the title. You can't, I'm not going to believe that. I'm just not going to believe that at all. Brett had a, uh, uh, you know, had this amazing following in a lot of places, but Europe was certainly first and foremost, uh, in the eyes of many, of course, Canada and, 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 uh, and North America big as well, but Europe became his, his, one of his strongholds. So I don't, I don't look, that's their opinion. Bruce's opinion. I'm sure he got it from Vince and they talked about it, blah, blah, blah. It's better for the European tour. Uh, I say bullshit on that one. I guess it's interesting to note this WrestleMania, we see Hulk and Brett both complete the, uh, title match hat trick for WrestleMania. At this point, both guys have competed on the show for the world title, the intercontinental title and the tag team titles. As you may remember, it was title versus title at WrestleMania six. So warrior had the IC and that was his opponent. Hulk Hogan was his opponent. So that explains how that one happened. Another interesting note is that more than one third of the wrestlers on this show were gone from the company by the end of 93. If you count the dark match, eight of the 22 wrestlers were gone by the end of the year. Hogan and beefcake both depart after the uh, European tour that summer. Tito Santana leaves in August as did Papa Shango. Ted DiBiase would finish up at uh, SummerSlam. Matt Bourne is replaced, uh, towards the beginning of fall. That's around the same time giant Gonzalez leaves. Mr. Perfect takes a sabbatical at the end of October. Man, lots of moving and shaking going on here in 1993. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting that things got that drastic, that there were that many people, uh, leaving, uh, and it tells me that were there, there could have been some obvious mistakes in hiring. I mean, how, how do you, 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 you can't, Vince and I talked about this before. We can't continue to try to recreate a uh, new coat of paint, new finish hold, new tights, new, whatever, new music. We can't continue to try to rehabilitate old, old personas when talents are tired and they feel, uh, entitled and they're not going to give you any extra effort. And, uh, and, uh, I, I just, I, that's what I believe. And so some guys are hired that shouldn't have been there. Some guys that already overstayed their welcome. And we needed to get younger and more athletic and get the fans something new. We all love something new. People saw Matt Hardy 
is new on AEW. They love the new aspect of that. Not even knowing where we're going with that. And neither do I, by the way. Uh, same thing with, uh, with Brody Lee, uh, new guys, new roles. Uh, they've got a track record, you know, they, they, they got a, but, but they, they're still hungry. They have things to prove the guys that you mentioned that, that were let go or that moved on had, were not willing seemingly to give you that new effort or reinvent. They're not Chris Jericho here, reinventing the wheel. They're not reinventing their own persona. They're not Steve Austin coming in and, and, and creating a, a, a persona based on the stone cold character and image. It just wasn't there. So, uh, I, it was a smart move to purge the roster as best they could and prepare to hire some newer guys and hopefully get some guys over that were uh, going to go above and beyond the call of duty that most main eventers are willing to do and have been for generations and generations. I'm not so sure anymore. That's a fact business wide. What feedback did Vince give you about your performance after the show? He loved my enthusiasm. Uh, love how you said, I love having you on the team. You're going to be a lot of fun to be around, you know, uh, but he loved the, the main thing was my passion and my enthusiasm and the fact that I was very, very prepared. Uh, you know, he, he said, there's not been anybody called WrestleMania that's been as prepared as you ever. So, uh, it was all positive. It was all good in that regard. And I got, and it's all, it stayed good, uh, until the next time I worked pay-per-view with the next, was well, the next month, I think, or two months, the King of the Ring. And then I, I faded off. I had my, uh, my last close-up, Mr. DeMille. I was gone. Let's talk about, um, WrestleMania as a whole. You were a part of a lot of big WrestleManias. Where does WrestleMania nine rank on your list? Well, number one for personal, uh, fulfillment. I've made it here again. You know, you go back in my humble beginnings as a, you know, a gopher, a cowboy Bill Watts hired to keep Leroy McGurk, his blind partner out of Watts uh, quickly fading hairline, uh, for 150 to $125 a week, all in. I mean, so I said, what does that mean? All in that means I had no withholding. I had no benefits, had no insurance, had no expense account. I made one twenty-five a week. And, uh, so I felt like I'd paid my dues and I also felt like that I'd finally you know, as a kid growing up, riding around the Hodge and Denny Hodge and Skandar Akbar, you know, the big deal is always, man, kid, if you ever get to work in New York, it's always about work in New York, the general term, New York, you want to work in New York, the territories that they're talking about, you want to work the, the garden in Philly and, and Boston, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, that was always in front of my mind. So I, I thought there was never going to be a way for me to get to New York. I wasn't going to be a refer, a, a wrestler. Maybe as a referee in the early going in the seventies, I thought, well, maybe I'll get hired as a referee, but then, you know, that was a kind of a fleeting, uh, dream. And then all of a sudden here I am and first day on the job, you're doing WrestleMania. It's a pretty damn cool deal. So I look at that event in Caesar's palace as probably the most pivotal day of my entire career because it's WrestleMania for my peers, for the folks in our business. It's, a, it's the equivalent of the super bowl. It's the equivalent of the, of the, of the world series, all those things, uh, March madness. Remember we used to have those, uh, but all those things. So it was, it was the epitome. It was the greatest thing that I'd ever accomplished. And I still look back on it. Is, was it the greatest show I ever worked on? Oh no, 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 no. It wasn't. It was the greatest WrestleMania I worked on by far, but it was, it's the most memorable and the most significant because of where it fell in my life's calendar. And, uh, so I've, 
I'm always going to look back on it and be honored and privileged that Vince assigned me to that, that deal. That's a lot of balls for him to, to do, to take, to do, because how's this new uh, Southern boy going to do at WrestleMania? How's he going to do, uh, live, live? Am I going to like it? Cause it'll be too late. If he's already out there and I don't like the way it sounds, I'm screwed. So Vince had the courage and the convictions to give me a shot. And it worked out real well for him on that night and me until I got, I got one more pay-per-view opportunity. And then things started coming a little bit unraveled, which I talk a lot about in, in uh, under the black hat. That's a really, that relationship with Vince is, uh, really clearly defined there and discussed. And it's probably not going to be what you think. Let's, uh, let's talk about the uh, best match poll in the wrestling observer. Shawn Michaels and Tataka gets first place. Second place is Steiner's head shrinkers. Third place, Lex Luger, Mr. Perfect. Do you think they have that right? Or did you slide Brett and Yoko in there somewhere? Hell yeah. I'll have slide Brett and Yoko in there. And, uh, think about how much better these matches would have been if they had legitimate finishes Yeah, that were logical. That, that didn't make you have a roll your eyes, uh, feeling and reaction. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, what, what Brett did with Yoko was magical worked because remember Brett's getting a hand handed to him the day before that's completely different than anything he ever perceived he was going to deal with. Even though the deal had been done days before, like I said, Hogan's not coming back on the, on the pretense. You might win the, the tag titles. Are you kidding me? Come on guys. Come on. So and Brett was smart enough to figure that out. He knew what the plan was. Hogan's not coming in unless he's got the, unless he's got the advantage and that's just good negotiation. If you can do it, then you do it. But, but I think that, uh, Brett's match with Yoko was, should be on there, but the finishes were just overall disappointing and man, what a, and what a competitive race for the worst match bowl. Yeah. Bob Backlund and, uh, razor Ramon went first place undertaker, giant Gonzalez, not too far behind them and right on their heels, Hulk Hogan and Yoko Zuna. Uh, overall, the fans voted 11% thumbs up, 78.6% thumbs down, 10.5% thumbs in the middle. If you could remove how important it was to you personally, just as a fan watching it back, uh, what do you think? Is this thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? Oh, middle at best. And middle at best. You know, I, I take my own personal little ride out of it and my skin out of that game. Uh, but as a wrestling fan, to tune into a wrestling show, uh, it lacked a little bit to be desired. I'd say thumbs in the middle of maybe I'm being kind, uh, but the, the, the atmosphere being outdoors, the sun shining Caesar's palace, the costuming, the, you know, the lions and tigers and snakes. Oh my, all that stuff was, uh, it gives it something. It gives it some, as for me, again, I can't get past the fact that was where I launched my, my journey. And, uh, I'm very thankful that that opportunity came about, uh, as I said many times. So uh, it was not the, it was in the bottom 10 of pay-per-views of, uh, WrestleManias. I would think that, uh, for as far as in-ring product is concerned, it's just the fact that the finishes were so stupid by and large, unnecessarily that, uh, it just, you wonder what the hell are we doing here? It's just making sense. So that's, that was my issue there. So the guys, i not, I never have knocked the guy's efforts or how hard they worked. They wanted to be successful. They wanted to have a great match. They wanted to steal the show. But when you're produced a certain way and you're given this mandate on what plays you're going to run, it's a little challenging. 
So, and it was that challenging that day for me. I thought we had a hell of a show because I was so wrapped up in it. I was like a kid, you know, uh, golly, I was so pumped, excited. I didn't notice the matches were very good <laughs> until it was all said and done. And then, you know, people start coming at you that, well, how'd you feel to be, you, you, you how'd you feel at WrestleMania? It wasn't a very good show, but looked like you were having fun. That's kind of, I got that a lot. What a very good show. It looked like you were having fun. Well, I, I was having fun. And at the moment I didn't think it was a bad show. In hindsight, upon further review, it was an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Well, next week, we hope you're going to have fun with us We're looking at WrestleMania 2000 on top. It's triple H, the rock, Mick Foley and big show with McMahon on every corner. We've got Keenan and Rikishi on one side, taking on DX and a tag match. We've also got Benoit Jericho and Kurt angle in a two fall triple threat match for both the IC and the European title. We've got a six person intergender match with China and too cool taking on the radicals. We've also got Terry Runnels and the cat. We've got edge and Christian working with the Dudley boys and the Hardy boys as a triangle ladder match. We've got TNA, which is testing Albert with Trish Stratus taking on head cheese, the old Al snow and Steve Blackman duo. We've also got hardcore Holly working with uh, crash Holly. Actually it's a whole hardcore battle Royal. How about that? And then to get things started, Big Boss Man and Bull Buchanan taking on The Godfather and D'Lo Brown with Ice-T. Lots of fun stuff to cover here next week. Tell a friend, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review. Be sure to tune in to Dynamite, man, and wash your hands and be nice to people. Yeah. Have a little patience right now. Uh, it's a trying time. Let's try to get along. Uh, we are all in, our, in this same wrestling family, and we appreciate you being a part of our family, and we appreciate the opportunity to be a part of yours. But let's have some positivity, damn it. And we'll, uh, hopefully this yep. coronavirus. And maybe you'll get your goddamn push if you're positive. How about that? <laughs> Be positive, get a push. We'll see you next week right here on Grilling JR with Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.